that's the best way to do audio record uh always record is just the kind of you you're in it and you don't there's no introduction it's just a conversation you're just there in it i'm a, i'm less worried about the production it's particularly the ones that i've done lately Man, I have not even putting music on them anymore. I feel like the priority is just, hey, here's this information, here's this conversation. If you want it, I used to walk this balance where it's like, what do I do that's produced, and what do I do that's off the cuff or whatever, and always record was essentially this off the cuff space, but it had, it still had one foot in production, right? And um, the only thing I've found myself doing on these last few, as you almost as you say, is actually just literally working on the first few minutes and trimming out some of the ums, some of the whatever, like literally just to get the ball fucking rolling. So it's like I still want to start at the beginning of the conversation, but maybe just speeding that along a little bit. Uh, only because, hey, if you're going to jump in for four hours, I don't want there to be any lag or any hesitation up front. And I think this new sort of approach pr- producing always record quote unquote producing it is to say no music no like production value like hey you're listening to always record and that shit just like here it is but let's get that conversation rolling and then suddenly you're just in it and uh, i've been really happy with the response lately maybe this is where we could take this conversation for a little bit is to say like you and i've talked about what you know what is sync book what are the what are the goals here and um, it's really clear to me in this current iteration of what's happening, feeling called to do this with no like queer motivation of like, I'm trying to restart Always Record. I'm not necessarily. I was, I was trying to have Always Record end at 200 was my goal for the last year. It was like, all right, let's wind it down. Um. You know, or just or just call it done. It felt like felt like it was kind of done. Why not just call it done? And then uh, I had offered uh, Jordan Barty and Alan Waller had been started doing some stuff that really sounded like Always Record. They were doing it on on YouTube. It was just two guys talking, and it's it was such such a Always Record type conversation. I said, Hey, why don't you guys just produce some stuff for a while? And they did some, but you know, Doug still produces some under this name. But it was just like, well, I don't, I don't know if always record is a thing, and I've really wondered about that. And now it's like, I don't, all that shit seems dumb, <laughs> like to even think about. Is it a thing? Like, I don't know. I have so many like bigger questions. <laughs> so it's like, this is just a space. It's a really nice resource to have. Of like, here's a way we can communicate with a bunch of people that's already built you know so like hey i want to talk to my friends i want to talk to people who i respect and then let's throw it out there for other people to 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 drive on it i don't know yeah well i was sort of we were messaging and um what i was kind of getting at in that was that everything before the stay home orders and that's so hard to track like i was talking to a colleague and we were trying to say well how do we nail down this date for academic purposes like when do you say this started is it the first case in wuhan is it the first 
um, escalation outside of Wuhan is it when the World Health Organization declared it a global p- pandemic is it when various governments around the world started to really ramp up their response to it is it when the Wall Street took its first nosedive like wh- where where do you measure the starting point of this and I think that reality is far more blurred than that. Um, I think it was Nor on a recent episode was was talking about how dreamlike reality can be, and there are no boundaries in a dream, and we can artificially put boundaries on for the sake of academics or for the sake of a media production, but those boundaries are always porous. And it's only when we have enough distance that we can look back and see a contrast. And the, the, the contrast is that everything up until January that was, you know, if you want to put fancy academic labels on it and say like 40 years of neoliberal capitalism, you know, or predatory capitalism, if you want to start looking at it from a, a, a more critical view like Naomi Klein did in Shock Doctrine or something like that. But where do you kind of, how do you frame the current moment? And you can't, it, we're too close to it at the moment. It, it's going to take a decade or two before we can really start to put those dates on it. Right. So it's so funny because I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think I, I can't help. This is maybe is a personal uh, correlation here because this is the project I'm literally in the middle of. But I started this year off, you know, uh, with this idea of, hey, it's hindsight 2020 looking back and I'm making this series around the way in which 9-11 is this thing that we now are far enough away from. We can look back at it and see what its cultural impact and all that sort of stuff was. And there seems something really, I don't mean this like patting myself on the back of like, Oh sure. Put this out at the right time. I mean, like, there's something I think that's really could be potentially really helpful on a bigger scale is to look for for people to have a groundwork to say like this is this is what it felt like when we went through this and this was literally we watched as you know George Bush and you know the Department of Homeland Security and all these things that come war on terror all the horrible political things that come out of it we can see that happening we're all like jaw dropping like holy shit what is this well we we already went through an iteration of that uh and i think there's something so a lesson to be learned uh, a a lesson to be learned from looking back on this event and as you said we won't be able to understand what we're going through right now for 10 plus years i'm saying well let's look at the most similar event we have not being 9 11 and we can look at that with nearly 20 years um 
and and maybe and maybe there's lessons to be found there. The other part, though, just to say about your your leading up, you're like, where does this start? Um, that whenever I cover material like the King Kill cycle or all this sort of all these patterns, it's always really hard for me to find a starting point. And I think that goes to uh, Robert Anton Wilson's idea of you, uh, or it's not even his idea, but um, you take, you, you ask yourself, how, where am I right now? I'm sitting in this chair. How did I get in this chair? Well, I came out of this chair because I was, you know, I was in the kitchen and I was making coffee. And then where was I before I made coffee? And then you just keep going backwards and backwards and backwards till you're a child, you know, crawling out of your mother's womb. And you're, you, this is this intellectual exercise that there is no starting point. There's no beginning, but what we can see is the series of cycles or experiences. Um, it's almost like, as you said, starting uh, always record off without a real lead in. It's like, sorry, bud, you're here. <laughs> you know, all of us found that one day. Literally, we dropped into this fucking plane of existence came out of our mamas and said, what the fuck is this? It's literally, you're, that is life, is jumping in in the middle of a conversation. And there's a comfort, a strange comfort to that. It's like, if you don't have the markers or the signals that trigger your pre-developed expectations, then everything is, there's you know, I hate to use the word novelty here because what is novelty in the, in the moment? What is, what is new? What is old? What is borrowed? What is blue? But in the sense of cognitive novelty, like you're finding your own ideas. This is nothing more than, an approach towards a curiosity and how can that be fostered? I don't know who is listening to this. I don't know what their personal passions are, what their intellectual drive is. And I was thinking about this last night. And thinking about the way that um, Nietzsche's words, when it comes to the internet, have this strange ring to them when he talks about looking into the void and having the void look back at you. Particularly when I think to a couple of years ago when I stayed at your place in... um, the undisclosed location where you were living at the time. And oh, were... I don't care. You could say yeah. <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. But... Yeah. Yeah. You know. And um come find me. Fuck around and find out. I, I was I was one of the first to see the sync movie, you know, not in full because I passed out before it ended, but before it was publicly released, you showed me a preview of it. But before that, we were we were talking about the crossover between our online lives and our real lives and 
some of the experiences that you'd had with the audience and what pressure you felt in terms of responsibility to those signals that you were getting from the audience and, you know, whether it's, and because of the subject matter, especially the first 60 to 100 episodes of Always Record, but when when the momentum of you and Bill and David in those first 60 episodes was really humming along and there was a real sense of routine to what Always Record meant and everyone seemed to be relaxed about their time back in 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, and I don't want to talk about a golden age of Always Record because there's no such thing, right? And and it was always fragmentary. It was always momentary. It was just the the synergy of what started the show, right? The energy that the show began with from episode one to whatever. Everyone's gonna. Everyone who listens to this is gonna have their own track. Maybe it was to. Um, episode 50 or maybe it was you know to when the world ended in 2012 I mean there's a few people out there who are having um, what are they called Emmys Um, I forget what they're called you know where it's like we're actually in a different Mandela effect moment yeah okay Okay. Um, yeah and I don't know like that is What were you going to say? Mm, no. I, I want to say, so we are, I do think we're an interesting time. I was having a conversation with Will Morgan the other day where um, he was saying, like, isn't it crazy how right now your your media stream is, no matter who you are, your media stream is being pumped full of confirmation bias. So if you think... Donald Trump's great and he's trying to help everybody and these Democrats just won't do anything to help people. You know, you, there's tons of media to support that. If you think you hate Donald Trump and he's, uh, you know, this fascist piece of shit, <clears throat> which he is, um, you know, it's ton of media to support that. If you, but if you think it's a conspiracy for 5G, it's, it's, you can find to support that. If you think it's Chinese conspiracy, if you think it's a CIA conspiracy, if you think it's a Q Navy intelligence operation, if you think it's, you know, whatever your fucking pet theory is, if you think the the whole virus is a hoax, or they're using the virus to kill you all, or the virus is an excuse for martial law, or, you know, it's like, pick, pick it. There's a, everything's on the fucking table right now. No one has a fucking clue what's going on. No one has a clue what's going on. But, that also means this is what you're talking about, these like Mandela effect. I mean, clearly doesn't mean everybody's right. It means everyone's confused. And, and I think there's, um, but there's something to be said for the novelty of this moment. Um, something to be said for the intensity of those Mandela effect reality tunnels, the, the collapsed reality tunnels, we're literally all in isolation, right? So we've all retreated to our individual reality tunnels, 
but those are just perspectives on which we're all still looking at the same elephant. We're all feeling around the same invisible elephant from our private spaces. And there's something to be said for sharing data and conversation at a time like that. Hey, man, it feels, what I'm feeling over here feels like a fucking foot. Oh, yeah, what I feel feels like a fucking tail. All right, maybe maybe we start to figure it out, you know? Um, yeah, and, and someone needs to have the courage and bravery to just walk up and slap it real hard on the ass, you know, and get the reaction across all aspects of it, you know? The feet are stamping, the trunk is going. And we can all sort of go, oh, okay, yeah, we're all looking at the same thing, you know? But that's where the illusion of the rigor that was back in 2010, 2011, when the quote-unquote truth movement was at its zenith and people were, you know, you think about, like, um, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth or something. It's like, well, initially those guys seemed to be the smartest guys in the room. And now it's kind of like, well... It just goes to show how when people are scared, when people are panicked, they want to turn to authority. And just as Stanley Milgram showed, if that oh, authority God, yeah. isn't legitimate, <clears throat> people will be induced to do anything. And I think that the truth movement was always already an illusion and hence why it fragmented so thoroughly you know and now we have the QAnon movement and people who are committing murder are getting different judgments based on that like I don't know the names of these people and I really don't care but there was um, the guy who cut his brother in half with a sword because he thought he was a lizard and his judgment from the judge came through the court trial finished and he was found to be criminally insane so not he was acquitted not guilty by reason of insanity and i just wonder like what's going to happen with the uh the other QAnon weirdo who killed the mob boss you know, is is he going to have a similar fate, acquitted, not guilty, by reason of insanity? And then what's the precedent that sets? Like, I have no doubt that there are members of that community, quote-unquote, who have just become completely delusional. And they're not acting rationally. They are no longer homeo economicus. They are homeo q anonymous yeah so what does that mean you know like this the the thing that i always come back to is the idea that you you have to you have to approach it at angles right you can't approach it dead on because if you approach it dead on, then you're not going to be able to use all the peripheral vision to gather the, the surrounding of the object. So if we think about, like, what is the truth of The Shining, 
right? And Room 231 or whatever that, that documentary is. Like, is there any objective truth to any of those theories? Or is it instead the fact that everybody who presented on that film was able to perform a reading of the film and the reading of the film was compelling and thus we were able to accept it as some kind of quote-unquote truth and for all intents and purposes it is true you know it is true that Stanley Kubrick used The Shining to confess about faking the moon landing. Or it is true that Stanley Kubrick used The Shining to give us an insight into exactly how the 1% operates. Or Stanley Kubrick used The Shining to outline the horror of the um, manifest destiny and the westward expansion of the United States after um, independence. What, you know, how do you want to approach it? Can all those things be stacked together and all be true at once? Is there an objective, you know, record of history that is unbiased by the perception of the human being who wrote the history, who shared the history, recounted it, and more importantly, who listened to the recounting of it, like, no. And so this capital true, capital T truth, this Enrandian objectivism is just another discourse that has the appeal of some kind of authority when in reality it is something that needs to be synthesized against another discourse in order to produce a new synthesis. So if I'm thinking about the way that I teach first-year students sociology and in particular sociological theories, whether it's Durkheim, whether it's Foucault, whether it's... Um, hang on, sorry. You okay. might need to cut out that long break. Um, my, yeah. I, I had... I had someone just message me and be like, hey, we were supposed to catch up for 15 minutes right now. Where are you? And I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm recording an episode of a podcast with someone else. Um, this is the problem. Like, I'm working from home. I'm more busy than I was before, actually. And um, I'm trying to look after everybody. I'm trying to map out my network and, and make sure that the people on the periphery of that network who are a little bit vulnerable um, are being that I'm connecting with them and making sure, Hey, have you got toilet paper? You know, that kind of thing. And, 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 but getting back to what I was saying about sociological theories is that they're all wrong, right? Durkheim was not correct, you know, and we can see that with the expansive centuries of history that have happened since then, um, that Durkheim couldn't have been correct. He was one person, but there were some very useful concepts that he developed that can be used as frameworks or constructs through which we can interpret contemporary data, through which we can analyze contemporary social behavior 
And so even though he was wrong overall in modules of his theory, they stand up today. So it's about stripping back the search for this objectivity and instead developing an arsenal of concepts that can be used to analyze the present moment from a range of different approaches and then bringing those different approaches together to form a temporary synthesis which gives us some insight but will never give us the quote-unquote truth like there is no bird's eye view of the entire world that happens at once because even from the international space station they're limited by the rotation of the globe and the earth is definitely round the globe is definitely round that's for damn sure um as the space so we i've been thinking a lot about four-dimensional space lately there's a visual in my head that i don't know if i'm going to be able to convey here but it's so uh, mckenna's thing about 2012 was uh he literally his book was called the invisible landscape right uh and he's trying to map this correlation of of moments in time to this eaching algorithm and whatnot but even that it implies this sort of two-dimensional scale it's 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 a chart you know with an x and y axis um but it doesn't account for three-dimensional information or four-dimensional space and i don't know i've just been thinking a lot about the idea that if you would like as a child i remember trying to wrap my head around what 4d was i remember like the the day i learned okay this is what one dimension is this is what two dimensions this is three dimensions and my immediate and then it just stopped and my immediate question as a child was well what's what's four and everyone's like, ah, oh, that, that's, you know, or I think the answer I got at the time was, well, some people think it's time. The fourth dimension is time. And then, you know, you, you spend more time thinking about that. But even the, when we think of like a line, a square, a cube, and then the way hypercubes are drawn, that image never really meant anything to me. The image of a hypercube was something I could never wrap my head around until recently where I see... So McKenna says this thing, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my next episode, which is about 2012 and McKenna, so I'm sort of that's where my headspace is at right now. But um, he says, um, and there's this, there's an interview with him when he says, uh with I Ching and Chinese culture and the philosophy behind how the I Ching might work, how you might devise a system for production fiction and, and, and fortune telling all these things and he says um the the eastern mind doesn't ask you know what causes what it's not cause and effect they ask what likes to occur with what as if there are groupings there's clusters of archetypes and events that seem to cluster together and that was a, a really provocative statement i've spent many years thinking about um and sort of my the strength of that argument has waxed and waned for me over the years, but now I realize, so you have in your three-dimensional space, you have your cause and effect, you have your Newtonian Western understanding of it, they're just looking at the third dimension and saying, yeah, that's, that is absolutely how it works. But the, to use McKenna's phrasing, the Eastern mind puts emphasis on the fourth dimension, and what that would be is 
if uh, a moment a moment here now in 2020 today is March for me it's March 31st 2020 for you is it already April 1st yeah happy April Fool's Day oh, the, dark, God, okay. the darkness of the storm is supposed to begin right mm. the uh, whatever that means that's interesting okay um but uh so uh so just to, just to finish that thought is to say um there's a moment this moment in time if we could picture the hypercube it might be connected to another area of the hypercube that takes place in april of 1987 in the middle of new jersey <laughs> like or whatever right uh, That's interesting that you picked 1987, though, because I was born April 30, 1987. Oh, really? Okay. Not in New Jersey, but, yeah, in a, in a little town in Melbourne near the beach called Sandringham, um, which I'm sure people can go nuts on because the Queen's holed up at her Sandringham Palace at the moment or something. Really? Um, you have the Queen there now? No, no, it's uh, it's na- it, the suburb I was born in is named after the estate where the queen. I don't, I'm, I don't know. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, I haven't looked okay, that okay, much okay. into it, but it's just okay, transient a, knowledge. The town is named after this a, a different place, and the queen is at that different place. Yeah, I think that like we're kind of like South Africa in a way, but. Because instead of apartheid, we had a genocide. So the fact that all our streets and all our towns are named after these kind of European names and places is just natural. But if you actually were to think about it, and what's really good at the moment is that a lot of our indigenous leaders are starting to have much more of a voice. And so we're starting, like, I don't, where I live, if you were to use the original name, it's the Wub. Sorry, I get confused, and I haven't said this out loud for a couple of days. Wurundjeri people's land. You know, that's where I'm from, and uh, it is their land. It is a shared land, and um, I think what you're talking about with the clusters of what likes to go together. You know, what is congruous? If you think about a, a, a story, a mythical story of, like, Apple computers or Windows, Microsoft, and the mythical story started in, you know, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or whatever, right, in a garage with someone who was, like, really nerdy and playing around with these things called computers. And eventually Steve Wozniak was able to condense it all into a a unit that could be personalized, hence we have the personal computer. And then you think about today and the fact that no country in the world has the political will to nationalize Microsoft Office, right? There's no country in the world that's done that. Every single business headquarters in every major city pays a stipend to Microsoft just so we can do basic business operations, you know. And sure, you can talk about Linux, you can talk about this, you can talk about that, but it's like what goes together? Well, 
it goes together because we don't have the collective imagination to think about what the mechanics are of Microsoft Word or Adobe PDF, right? Xerox, Kleenex, you know, Sorbent. These brand names become so ingrained into the product that separation and decoupling and realizing like at a chemical level or at a quantum level, this is just a, a very specific collection of atoms and then someone's just put their surname on it at the end, you know. Einsteinium as the, you know, 199th element. I don't know. That's not accurate, by the way. I'm just guessing. But, it, um, you know, on the periodic table, it's like radium or whatever. Well, it's just because of a language, you know. And here we can get into, like, the whole... Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein and talk about, well, if you could get a translation for a lion, would you actually be able to have a conversation? No, because your point of references are so different. Even though you're seeing the same Savannah Plain, um, the, the, the incentive structure in, inbuilt into the language, the pre-existing, like, the pre-existing conditions for which I can communicate an idea and you can successfully receive that idea and we can be quote-unquote on the same page and not there if I want to talk to a lion or if I want to talk to um, a platypus, right? So, and, and I think about in that moment like what he says, which is the limits of our language other limits of our world, right? So that's where art comes in because art is a meta language that transcends time. We can go back through the history of art and look at all the wonderful paintings from the very first handprint in a cave to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we can say that is all art and... Um, you know, you could sit and watch, I don't know, you, you, you could, you could have a painting in your house of the girl with the pearl earring and you could have, um, you could be sitting there looking at it and just meditative state, but you have a little dog on your lap and the dog sees where your eyeline is. So the dog starts looking at the painting, right? What does the dog see? What do you see? And what do you see today? What did you see five years ago? What, do you, what, are you, what are you going to see in five years' time? And so we have to be able to understand that, and, and we don't have to be able to do anything, actually. I mean, this is the beauty of this moment. It's a moment of creative chaos. We are just in this space, in this time, and all of a sudden, because of a global pandemic that caught everybody off guard, right? And, and whatever, you can, you can do the whole Trump thing and say it's, you know, these people's fault, or you can do the, the Cuomo thing or the Victorian government thing and say it doesn't matter how this came about, it's here. And wasting precious time, not flattening the curve, but starting to talk about 
well, we didn't get the right information on the right date or, you know, the Moscow Mitch McConnell line of, well, if the Democrats hadn't tried to impeach the president and distracted everybody for two months, maybe we would have had, like, fuck off, honestly. That is such bullshit. And that guy is the biggest fucking coward. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeffrey Epstein-level cowardice about Mitch McConnell. But the kind of deeper point here is that if and and this was i did my thesis on conspiracy theories conspiracy narratives in contemporary society and you and i alan have talked many times about that and the idea was you could have the truth the absolute objective perfect truth but because you have to then communicate that to other people it becomes imperfect as soon as it leaves your mind and comes out your mouth, right? And we've all had this, there are memes like this, it's like the sentence in my head versus the sentence that actually came out of my mouth, the words that I was thinking versus the words that made it to the ear of my interlocutor. And it's like, yeah, because there's an abstraction, then there's like a concrete, layer and this is where i was sort of the whole I Ching thing with these clusters of ideas or the dream or the you know there's been significant moments in my life where the I Ching has turned up uninvited and through a series of events that were completely unexplainable Right. If I tried to relay these events to you, it wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. But there it is. All of a sudden, it's, it's, it's in front of me now, and it's giving me a message. And so how much weight do I put into that message? I could be like, oh my God, this is, um, this is God. This is the hand of God, whatever that means, coming into my reality, into my box of vision and directly giving me a message or I could approach it. This was a bit of fun. This was a crazy night. There was a lot of different other things going on that have warped the edges of my perception here. And therefore this needs to be accounted for as a warped perception as well. Like that comes down to the individual and that comes down to the moment an individual makes that decision to place weight into a message like that or to place novelty and amusement, right? If you get your fortune read at, um, uh, you know, a major theme park, right? And I'm thinking of a theme park in Europe that I can't remember the name of in Austria, beautiful, um, when we were there, it was snowing and everything like that. And it was, it was very freaky actually, because none of the rides were open. Um, but the Ferris wheel was open and we were walking through the amusement park to get to the Ferris wheel. And I kept saying to my girlfriend, is this where you murder me? Um, and that was, that was very funny and it was very eerie and it felt like I was walking through the set of a horror movie, but you know, you get your fortune told there versus, you have an elderly relative who doesn't advertise but has this technique of reading the tea and they only do it on very special occasions. Like, well, so which one is reading your fortune? And I think, like, 
one of the meditations that I do on a semi-regular basis, at a point in that meditation, it's only short, 10 minutes, but at a point in that meditation, it starts saying to reflect metacognitively on what thoughts have come into your mind since the beginning of the meditation. So at about the eight-minute mark, and it says, and you can label your thoughts. You can call them planning. You can call them remembering. You can call them fantasizing. Or you can simply label them positive, neutral, or negative. But I think if we take that first layer of, of labels, remembering, planning, fantasizing, and the blurred line between planning and fantasizing, sometimes, like getting back to that Microsoft idea, it's like you need to have the fantasy of being the number one software retailer for office use in the world back in 1960, 70, whatever, in order to plan to manifest that reality. And... Well, and then there's also all the government corruption and well, allowing you certain monopolies. And uh, yeah, I'm curious, you keep mentioning Microsoft. Is that just as a metaphor or is this, are you relating this in any way in your mind to Bill Gates' current sort of prominence uh, with it, like Event 201 and his idea for like, I got these vaccines and we're going to do these vaccine certificates and ID 2020, all those sorts of things. Are you? No, is I there a the... correlation in your mind or... I mean, obviously, there's a correlation, but what's the p-value, right? So if we're doing a statistical analysis of, of that idea and trying to use data to map that and, and actually get precise about it, I think that the p-value would be greater than 0.05, meaning it's not worth anything. You know, it's, it's that correlation is equal to random chance. I, I mean, I'm using Microsoft because it, whether you've got a PC or a Mac which are the binary choice of computer operating systems, right? For my, and I'm talking about it from like an institutional point of view as well, not an individual point of view. So I'm thinking about, well, what software do banks buy? What software does the government buy? What software does NASA or the military have to use in order to be able to successfully communicate? And I'm picking Microsoft in particular because it broke through at the right time to be so ubiquitous that we just accept it, right? We don't ask the question, well, hang on, why doesn't the Australian government have an operating system for business machines to operate within Australia, you know, or New Zealand or America or even just New York, Virginia, whatever? What, why did, at, at the point in which computers became so fundamental to our lives, in that convergence of what things go together, not cause and effect, but what things go together. And so the cause and effect of our current situation may never be known, right? But the, the we can very readily see what goes together. And a word processor goes together very well with a um, machine that we call a computer. Right, And the variation within that is huge. Now, to the question of Bill Gates, Bill Gates isn't doing, I don't know, what. how many people does Microsoft employ? Yeah, and if we even just take 
you know, they're an essential business, right? And, and a lot of people at Microsoft are working from home right now. So the, the conti- continuity of business is there. What percentage, what, how many hours, man hours per day is spent on developing the software? And Bill Gates walked away in January. But even before that, like, what was his actual contribution to the functioning of any of those products it was very low right he was making macro level decisions about purchasing and whatever else that ceos do i've never been one so i can't comment but he wasn't coding he wasn't spending his days coding for minor improvements in one of the one of the office suite products whether it's word or excel or whatever but it was more to my point is the imagination, the collective imagination, and you can take that from a Durkheimian view or a Jungian view and both give you different insights, but the collective imagination around these products is such that they're impossible to disaggregate. And that and that's the point that I was driving at, and that's why I picked that. But you could e- e- equally pick... Um, doing a search on the internet with Google or any range of things like that, you know, what goes together was the question that you raised. And so that's where I'm at now to the point about Bill Gates in, in the sense of like his pandemic response work that he's been doing for years. And again, it's like we can fantasize about the dark conspiracies where he's a central character and it would make an excellent Tom Clancy novel. Is it true? And, and, and is that even the right question? He is a voice and he is a voice that is listened to by many, many people. So even like if you actually said, all right, let's take a value neutral approach to Bill Gates let's assume that he has the adequate knowledge for this particular topic. And let's go back four years. So 2016, and we're talking about his, whatever that tabletop game was that he was a part of. I mean, I don't have the details, Uh, you know, Alex Jones bangs on about it all the time, but he's wrong (laughs) and he hasn't understood it. Um, And I mean, there's a thousand hypothetical, situations where people have dealt with pandemics because pandemics have always been a big problem for human society especially dense human societies like cities going all the way back to like justinian's flea and the plague of the roman period like this is a part of our our mythology the plague is a part of our mythology so of course people who have accumulated a vast amount of resources that they can draw upon at any particular time whoever you want to think about there um, but let's say bill gates then if they dedicate those resources towards a mythological question like a pandemic then of course people are going to listen to them but it doesn't mean that it was predictive programming it doesn't mean that they were seeking to unleash a bioweapon or or any of that other stuff like the reality 
is much more complicated than that, and I think that's an oversimplification. So the, the yeah. sort of last I just, point I'll I just make want to inter- about Bill Gates. Yeah, yeah, go. I just want I just want to quickly interject for that last last point to say, I, I think uh, the uh, in a, to a sense I agree with you. Of it, it almost doesn't matter if it was planned, a planned bioweapon, or this is just a reaction to uh, like a, a naturally occurring situation. I, I would say, however, regardless of the origin of the thing, we do have to be very aware of who, people are utilizing this time to seize unprecedented uh, authority, and that that in itself is so. It's like you didn't have to be the ones who caused it as a problem, reaction, solution, you know, type situation, but you you're sure taking advantage of the situation. But that again, still, that still that's needs a separate I, I, thing. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's a separate thing. Is to say, like, whether you re- uh, it doesn't have to be an embracing or rejection of the conspiracy theory of was it planned is to me almost a moot point. But I do think we shouldn't then throw the baby out the bathwater. Is to say, well, we're still going to have to deal with people taking advantage of this situation as it is. And and we do should address that. I don't I don't want to be like, well, who's to say? It's like, well, no, no, they're they are they are looking to grab as much power as they can right now. So that I I do think that's a worthy. A so worthwhile what's the work. language? What's what's the language to deal with that? Like, is it Todd Phillips' Joker? Is that the language that we should be looking at? Where the opening scene with Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Flick. And he's a street clown, and he's got a sign that he's spinning, and it says "Everything must go." Was that prescient? Was that an astute analytic observation, or was that a synchronous thing that kind of the collective energy of our focus on that <clears throat> has given us the ability to start to decouple what was quote-unquote normal just five weeks ago to today. And in five weeks' time, what will be quote-unquote normal as we adjust, as we have new absolutely imaginings? So, of course, there are people like Michael Bloomberg who have positioned themselves in an economy where it is acceptable to say you earned money when the reality is that you were able to extract rents off the labor of other people. And that's the mechanic. How it got to be that is different for every individual who fits into that class and of course that class is transient it's not set in stone it's not a bloodline or some secret cabal it's it's you know i mean to there's always going to be if you want to call it insider trading if you want to call it conspiracy work black magic like whatever the words are but more to the point is Michael Bloomberg claims he earned his billions of dollars, but he was never paid by the hour. He was he was able to collect that by taking ownership of a particular set of 
um, uh, what would you call it? Set of occurrences, whether it's the Bloomberg machine or, you know, and then leverage that to take ownership of other things. And, and so, you know, it's, it's slavery by any other name would smell as foul. And that's what we're looking at. So, of course, when people panic, you know, people who are panicking on food stamps with no income are going to behave in a particular way. And the individuals who find themselves in those situations are completely unpredictable. But as a demographic, we can make certain predictions like when australia was the first country where toilet paper became an issue where the supply of toilet paper became an issue and the rest of the world laughed at us but it was pretty clear that we were just the first domino and everybody else was about to experience the same thing and to that extent it was predictable what are the things that are going to run out of the supermarket first Cleaning supplies, including toilet paper, pasta, rice, non-perishable food items, and long-life food items. Like, that's just predictable. Which individuals got them? Completely unpredictable, right? Who was, who was quickest to cognitively accept the reality and then act on it before everybody else? And did they have insider trading knowledge? Did they have more resources accrued to them that gave them a bigger perspective on what society was going through a lot faster than people who just read the morning newspaper and watch the evening cable news. Like, it's you're never going to be able to say with any certainty until long after the event is over and you can actually go back and piece together the fragmentary evidence to create the narrative. But Sure, but, you know, that, and that's how insider trading... Okay, let's even just go mainstream thing there is to say uh, if you have four senators who, you know, and, and all these uh, different people who sold off all their stocks bef just before... And I'm starting... I'm talking about, let's say, in January, February, where your your point is like, well, were they just... They're highly attuned to what's going in in the marketplace. Yeah, but they also have inside knowledge. They... Uh, they're getting briefings from government agencies about maybe what, what should we be planning yeah, well, for that, a pandemic that, response. You're just to say, Bear and Feinstein, right? And I'm talking. Yeah, I can't I'm remember the other names. I'm saying. So they had a Senate national security meeting where they were briefed on what was happening in Wuhan, and they were told like a month and a half, six, six four to six weeks before the public, this will be uncontrollable. Um, and this is going to be really, really bad. It's going to be a global pandemic. And as soon as they walked out of that meeting, they went and sold millions of dollars worth of stocks. That's a crime. We can, That's we can very saying. clearly yeah. you, understand we, that like, as I, a crime. I appreciate you and I try and talk in terms of abstractions, but I think like things like that, you're allowed to say that's a definitive shitty move. You're allowed to be pissed about that. You're allowed to like, I, I don't want, I don't want to talk in such generalized abstractions that we don't hold people accountable for like, no, there's there is still cause and effect. As I said, there is um, cause and effect doesn't go away just because we acknowledge uh, a causality and vice versa. Just because we can recognize cause and effect doesn't mean that the, you know all the things that don't conveniently 
fit into a Newtonian worldview, we just ignore them because they don't fit. It's like these things are both both true. And, and my point is to say, like, seriously, those people who knew and sold stocks, fuck them. I hope they choke on every fucking dollar they they stole. Uh, I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's criminal behavior that is directly harming people for a selfish gain but again it's like well what (laughs) that was always going to happen the marble run always had that part at the end of it because that's how we constructed our society and we gave the corporations so much power 30 40 years ago and they then consolidated and built upon that power so they could be the ones to have that precious information before everybody else um but at the same time if we if we take okay those four individuals we know enough to be suspicious to be suspicious of a set of behaviors that they all took in a in a very particular timeline right so there was a a meeting in the senate where they were given privileged information they then acted on that information in a way that benefited themselves and harmed the public. Okay, that's concrete. And we know their names. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but you know, it's easy enough to look up their names. And they, those names should be remembered in November, regardless of what party they're affiliated with. Those names need to be remembered in November. And I can't vote, but vote on my behalf, vote for justice, vote for people who are talking about making society more equitable, vote for people who are talking about creating systems that are inclusive and universal and don't push a system of zero-sum game, winner-takes-all. Vote for people who you think and who you feel a connection to in November, regardless of whether it's the president race or a Senate race, a House race, a county race, a local district race, find the people who are supporting a new approach, who are supporting a way forward that takes a different imagination than what we've had in the past. And being nostalgic in November and hoping to go back to 2008 in November is going to lead to disappointment. And I can't speak for the audience and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I'm going to ask you to think about all the countries around the world who don't get a say, whether it's Australia, Africa as a continent, the global south as a hemisphere we don't get a say but we are very much impacted by the people who do get a say so it's taxation without representation in a big big way that said so that's one concrete issue for people who took a very specific set of behavior Um, steps in in what we call behavior insider trading criminal activity that does not mean everybody who sold stocks on that day was an insider trader and i think that's the 
important part to sort of think about the abstract and the and the concrete here. When we're talking about abstracts, we can't say that on January 20th or whenever it was, everybody who sold stocks was operating on the same information. That's not true. Now, some of those people had an, had a feeling, a gut feeling, like, oh, shit, I don't know, like, what's happening now. Things seem a bit uncertain. I'm going to cash out because I'm risk-averse versus I have direct knowledge that our health system is incapable of dealing with this and our economy is going to almost immediately grind to a screeching halt. Therefore, I want to make sure I've got mine and fuck everybody else. Like, there's two different levels of conversation that we can have at the same time. Uh, there's always two different conversations, uh, multiple levels on which we can have these conversations. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, it's a really, like, I think you and I are both tr kind of cautious of and trying to emphasize that same element there of just just being aware of those mul multiple sides of that, that thing. Um, of, of really any of these topics, any way we want to approach this. That's why I was saying the multiple reality tunnels are sort of valuable right now. Um, even if they're, it's a, it's it's sort of a babble like effect of if everybody is in their own reality tunnel, then you sort of lose that common ground. Um, but there is a. But, but if I can interject there, how what? What likelihood do you think that actually is, right? Even when we think about... Do I think it is like, what? Well, that everybody really is in their own reality tunnel. Like an individual reality tunnel, a hundred, uh, all consuming individual reality tunnel. There are some people, for sure, and we may label them uh, mentally ill, paranoid, or any number of other labels, but when we actually think about it, like the way that you treat your supermarket um, cashier, whether you vote Republican or you vote Democrat or you believe that the moon landing was faked or you believe that NASA is the greatest institution America's ever produced or you think that Elon Musk is running a huge scam with Tesla or you think that Elon Musk is going to save the world because he's going to start producing ventilators, right? And that's they're, they're all false binaries. I think that you can have a lot of gray area between those things. Like it can be yes and, right? Elon Musk was running a Tesla scam and now he is helping the world by producing ventilators, for example. Now, huge asterisks because I don't know if that's true. I've, I've not spoken to him, nor will I. Nonetheless, the, the kind of broader point is that um, <clears throat> we are all still operating on some basic understandings of shared reality. Like, supermarkets exist, and food production supply chains need to be protected and water is an essential that we need to to make sure that we're using responsibly now that so there uh it's like what is what is the base that everybody has if, if i know american television's different to 
uh, Australian television in terms of what is quote unquote free to air and what's basic cable and what's premium cable. But if you think of it that way, right, everybody who owns a television, if they're not paying an additional bill, they'll get something from that, right? And that's a broadcast that we all have. We all, like when Donald Trump presents a press conference, we all have access to it. Now, our reactions to it are different, but we all agree it happened. Or if you want to think of a, a, a less unpalatable figure, Governor Cuomo, right? He holds a daily briefing. We all concur that that was real, that that happened, that that has historical value, that the information he relayed was, to the best of his knowledge, accurate, or maybe not. Maybe to the best of his knowledge, he's, it's inaccurate for the propaganda purposes of that delivery, right? I don't, I don't care. The point is more that we still have these little fragments of shared reality and something like always record is a way to bring those fragments together so that our audience the people listening to my voice right now can go okay well what is real like what is actually happening today what is fantasy what is remembering what is planning what is going to happen for sure right like if i drink two more cups of coffee i am going to need to urinate um versus you know if i drink five cups of coffee i'm going to be able to um achieve so much more today and i'm going to be a plus in all my meetings and like all this fantasy stuff it's like yeah sure i want that to happen if i if i did a line of adderall right now maybe but i can't actually say for sure what the future is going to be in 10 minutes in 20 minutes in five years right it's a fantasy projection of what i want it to be and sometimes those fantasies are so compelling that we get we fall into them and that's what i think is like this mandela effect movement or this QAnon movement or this um whatever movement you want to think about is like the the struggles of everyday reality and the grind of feeding yourself, paying rent, paying bills, sending your kids to school, making sure everybody's healthy in, in a system, especially in the US, that is so cruel and so unjust. And, and it, it, it changes, like the collective psyche around that changes. The, there's a distrust among your fellow people, whereas like, well you know, you got sick, you took up a, a bed. Well, were you a smoker for the last 40 years? Fuck you. Why should you get a bed? I'd never smoked in my life and now I'm not going to get a bed. Whereas if you had a universal healthcare system that had adequate supply and plenty of redundancy and certainly plenty of waste in terms of PPE and, and you know, you had that oversupply rather than this just-in-time supply, then people would be able to trust each other more. I mean, I wonder what would happen to the QAnon movement if everybody was guaranteed from the federal government 75000 US dollars a year, regardless of whether they worked or didn't work. What would happen to the QAnon movement at that point? So, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, the Q movement, I think, is in a way... Um, 
I, I don't think I don't I don't think it survives this moment. But well, it's I think a stand in, it, right? It's it's a stand in for what came before and what will sure, come well, that's what I'm saying. I think I think, I, think the, I just want to say I think yeah. the Q movement dies in this, but it evolved like a, an offshoot will come out of it, taking all those people that are sucked in, and you'll, there'll be some some group that'll be able to say, okay, well, we were right about these things and these other predictions oh those those weren't our predictions those weren't whatever because when this started when the coronavirus thing started q guys they all sort of seem to have gone all in right where they're like this is it this is our moment this is the thing we've been telling you about it's happening uh mm-hmm. i don't know how they you know once their their grandmother dies of coronavirus or uh, or their favorite pedophile celebrity gets released uh, from the hospital and it's like, oh, actually they weren't really being put in Navy detention. Or, I don't know, whatever the fuck it is. Just to say, like, they're, they're, they're shits, they're, they're being very specific about what they're saying is going to happen and uh, I, don't, I don't think they'll survive that, but people, people love, man, I see fucking were you ever into Cliff High, uh, WebBot Project? Does that do anything for me? Um, I was enjoying the conversation that you guys were having about Cliff the other day. Did I bring um, up Cliff and, the other day? Just, then I don't want to do that again. Uh, yeah, sorry. I just, uh, no, I think, I, 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 I just I think, think uh, how many people have made predictions. They don't come tr- Look, fucking David Wilcox, you know, all these fucking shit scam people who are like, hey, I could tell the future. This is what's going to happen. Make a very specific prediction. It doesn't happen. They just keep on going because, you know... They get. I think to one some extent, right we're all there. guilty of that, though, right? It's just to what level are we aggressively pursuing it for the purpose of grifting or financial gain? Um, yeah. I got about another ten minutes, so okay. um, just to put that out there because I do, I, I have some other meetings coming up, so. That's right. Yeah, I got a, I got a ton of my plate too, so it's all good. I, I think the point you were making about Cliff High was really interesting. I think like his project was fascinating. This idea that there was a meta language on the internet that could give us some accurate ideas about which direction we were all pulling in, right? Um, Based on emails and this and that. But it's like, um, excuse me, the NSA has Bluffdale in Utah, which is huge as a facility to do just that. And they're still not doing it in the same way that... Um, you know, the accuracy of that is not there and you're doing this off a laptop because you had some IT experience and you're going on about how, you know, back in 2016 or Hillary Clinton's actually a clone and she's got Huntington's disease and it's like, okay, it's fascinating. I like listening to your story, but we'll, I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing. And that's the attitude that I've always had towards him. It's like, okay, these are some outlandish claims, but like I was saying, I, I mean, you've made some outlandish claims, Ellen. I've made some outlandish claims. It's have more I made outlandish about... claims? Have I made outlandish claims? Tell me. Oh, uh, I mean, um, we would have to go back through hours and track. hours of recordings. Yeah, sure. But I don't. I. I really. I do just for what it's worth. On a like, a, I would like to be checked because I. I really try and make it a point to say I'm not. I don't ever want to make a. A predi- I, uh, so there was, I had this conversation with my partner the other night. So like, 
So right now, I just put out two weeks ago, I just put out a video that is about, you know, the, the crown stuff, all these, all the, the royal symbolism, and specifically uh, relating with Trump and the Lion King and all this sort of stuff. And now, within two weeks, I just put up a, an image. There's a, there's a meme out right now that's like, everybody's talking about two things on the internet, and it was coronavirus and Tiger King. And it's like, okay, so literally the two most prominent things at the moment are the crown, the, this wasteland of crown, and this uh, Tiger King, which is like a playoff Lion King, right? Yeah, uh, and there's and also there's... the memes where they've superimposed either Joe Exotic's face onto Trump or they've superimposed Precisely. Precisely. the mullet onto Trump. And I even saw Bernie on the official People for Bernie thing. They did a Bernie version of that same meme where he, Bernie's face, but it's the mullet and everything of Joe Exotic. And <coughs> <coughs> what complicates that is that Joe Exotic actually ran for president. Like... If if did he really? Yeah, we don't. We, yeah, if he gets, uh, if if somehow there's enough public pressure to get him released, um, because he's a non-violent criminal and because of coronavirus and overcrowding prisons, and somehow he gets out, and then in July the DNC convention happens, and he's able to have some people around him go, "Hey, you need to very quickly register for um, a, as a Democrat and run again." I know it's really late in the game, but you know Bernie's not going to win, and Biden's gone missing so much so that Biden has been an absence of our conversation and now we're right at the end of it. Um, and it's like, well, in, in, in a potential fantasy version of the future, Joe Exotic, a, a series of events could happen wow. where Joe Exotic becomes the President of the United States. It's not impossible. Okay. It's well, very, I, very well, unlikely. I don't, I don't, I don't think that happens, but... but... I didn't. So wait, he ran in 2016. That's fascinating information. Yeah, that is did. fascinating. Holy shit! Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. And I remember. I remember wow. in 2016 watching. I think it was a John Oliver episode tracking Trump's, um, you know, Trump's nomination run or whatever. Uh, candid candidacy or his campaign. Sorry. Not enough coffee this morning. Um, his campaign, and he was comparing it to Joe Exotic and saying, well, you know, they're both crazy, but at least Joe Exotic is fun to watch and he's got tigers, you know. Um, but, oh, yeah. like, I, I have I, a, I just found that. I'm going to watch that after we hang up. That's really, this is this yeah. is a fast. So this this just proves my point even more. So what I was going to say is the video I made could not have been more timely it could not have been more prescient in that sense, but the the reason I so the reason I'm sort of fixated on this uh, idea of make it was this prediction is this whatever is to say that wasn't my intention. I and but this is, I mean, I I feel I am shocked and floored by how precise this is this moment. So I've started doing. I encourage you and anyone listening. I've been building this timeline at thesyncbook.com slash kings. And at the top, you just get like the classic Suicide Kings video that I made years ago and the PDF, whatever. But just scroll past that. And I've created a timeline of what you just scroll. And it's just like 
hit, hit, hit. Like this is this is what's happening. This is what's happening. What's happening? What's happening? Happening. And now I'm at I'm at the point where I'm updating this every day because there's some ridiculous sort of thing that ties into this. Um, and uh, well, I guess my my point of focusing here is to say like I even with this bullseye, don't want to say, ah, that's a prediction, that's a whatever. It's to say that, yes, there is we there is something about the non-linear aspect that we have to acknowledge and recognize, um, but there's, it's so dangerous then to turn around and say, ah, but I can tell you blah, 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 because I didn't know about... This guy, Joe Exotic, wasn't even on my fucking radar, right? So, like... I, there's no way for me to predict the rise of this fucking Netflix show about an animal trainer or whatever. There's neither that you can get the archetypes. There's it's a bigger conversation, but just to say, like, um, I really want to be it's cautious. Convergent. It's yeah, but just to say, really, point. my my point uh, that I really just want to say before I stop talking is to say, uh, I really am very hesitant to then link that in with saying, ah. Uh, I could tell you what's happening or anything like that. And I just to say, as so I was like, check, go ahead, check me if I ever do that or if I, whatever. I, I try not to make predictions. Uh, we can all speculate of what I think is happening or whatever, but I, I really, I, I, I don't, I don't ever want to be in that position where, um, you, you know, it's playing, playing well, this role. I've, just to be clear, I was not accusing you of anything when I, I said sure. that. More to the point is that if anyone was to actually take a detailed list of every statement they've ever made, there would be a percentage, a very small percentage, but a percentage of what we would categorize as outlandish claims. And where every single person who's ever used language is guilty of that. But that there's a difference between what could be an innocuous outlandish claim like, you know, Donald Trump's going to win re-election and then, you know, come November he he's resoundly defeated or whatever um, versus Donald Trump can't possibly win and then he wins. It's like, you know, we can make those claims and um, it's it really comes down to what space you're making the claim in to whether it's outlandish or not. And that, that is where we get into dangerous territory because if you are in a cult and you are um, adopting the mindset that is required to, um, I guess, shelter yourself from other perspectives that exist within reality, then you are going to behave in a way that may seem outlandish to people who are not in that cult and if we think about the coronavirus and all the people who are saying well i think it's better that i die for the economy than to let america go down the tubes it's like well you don't understand what you're saying you you have no appreciation of epidemiology and how dangerous that comment actually is when we start counting the bodies of dead people in the millions rather than the hundreds of thousands and that's where you know we can start to separate the risk value of a, of of every single claim and it's when you have a convergence of people who are you know like there's any number of 
right-wing zealots that we can pick on, like full-on stormfront people, um, you know, whether you want to, you know, we won't name names, but there, there are, there are, you know, your figureheads out there who support very extreme positions, right? And they keep feeding red meat to their every week, and they get to a point where they're now so entrenched in that act of feeding red meat to their audience, whether it's um, uh, whether it's uh, a small YouTuber or a big-time radio broadcaster who, you know, may or may not have recently been given a Presidential Medal of Freedom, um, they, they get trapped. They get trapped where they can no longer walk away. And even if they know what they're doing is incongruous, I won't use words like right or wrong, moral judgment aside here, but just they're, they're literally hyper aware of how incongruous their activity is to actual existing reality in the Manhattan hospital system. They can't step out of it though, right? The, the the incentive structure they've built for themselves, the audiences that they've built, the publics that they've built. And I think if you want to have a really good philosophical breakdown of this, Oliver Thorne has released a new video on Philosophy Tube that, um, that really goes into a lot of detail about exactly what I'm talking about, the creation of multiple publics and, and, and this idea of a holographic collective conscience that is bending bending off each other right and so you end up with these situations where it's completely distorted and then you end up with situations where there's largely a huge agreement right like youtube as a platform is loved equally by people who hate each other vehemently so what does that tell you you know it's like there is common ground it's just you have to recognize the mechanics of the what what allows the narrative to exist in the first place and we we get just so lost because wall street has driven us towards this relentless pursuit of self-interest where the ultimate goal is to have a billion dollars Right, and that's good. You're doing good for society if you are extracting rents off the backs of people who are in very desperate situations. You're doing good for society. Um, you know, where's Pete Buttigieg in all this? What is it? Where's his Medicare for all who want it right now when you're talking about three million people suddenly unemployed? You know, do they still love their private health insurance? Like, where the fuck is that guy? You know? that That's something I'm really angry about. Well, <laughs> there was, uh, I, we, I, uh, we don't have time to go into what shitbags they all are. We'll, because... we'll, do, we'll do a part two. We'll, we'll reconnect next week and we can go back into, you know, whatever the timeline on. This is fascinating. I've been looking at this uh, syncbook.com forward slash kings. And yeah, definitely. Everybody yeah, listening we'll... to our voices right now should uh, go and go and study that. To, not to an over-obsessive extent, but just go and have a look in detail at each of the things that 
Alan's put up because it, it is fascinating, really, really fascinating. I'm sure by next week there'll be more stuff there. So, um, yeah, I we just should, added, we I just added Joe Exotic's 2016 presidential campaign video. I just added that to the list here because that is that is holy shit. That is holy shit. Wow. And he was a libertarian. And he went to the Libertarian debate. I forget which episode. It might be episode four or five. But he went to the debate and had just no political nuance. Wait, is that covered in the TV show? Yeah. Oh, I got to go watch that. Okay, because I think I've I've seen the first maybe three or four episodes, something like that. So, okay, this is is my homework for now because this is... um... Wow. Oh, wow. All right. Well, listen, I thank you for that information. Um, you have a great day. Yeah. If you want to uh, touch base again next week, I'd be happy to do that. Um, we'll, 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 uh, maybe we can coordinate a similar sort of timing. Um, I like yeah, that idea. I mean, I'm happy to give, uh, this audience, you know, 90 to a hundred minutes a week. Um, and, and we can just go from there and, I, I think that this is important. If you wanted to, if you were to do a regular weekly thing, then I would encourage you um, to maybe wait a week. We, I've I've been doing. Uh, so well, we, can, doing we the, can play it by ear. This is an off mic conversation. I think, sure, sure, can, sure. I just what I want to what I want to say is like I don't. So I've been doing uh, the last two Sundays. I did a group call. Um. And we have a project, so that like there's a specific reason for that group call, um, and we're going to be finishing that project next week, basically. So um, I would maybe incur, I would in, I would just to say I'm glad we invite you to that group call, but maybe wait till the week after so we finish what we were doing uh, this week. But I, I would like to keep a, a weekly call going. Um, as far as doing multiple weekly calls. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's, is that sustainable? Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a totally different conversation, but just like, yeah, do I produce a podcast every day, <laughs> you know, like with some, a different person every day? I mean, I, I'm, I have the free time right now, but I'm really trying to focus on getting this video series done. Um, it depends how simple, like if you can literally just save this conversation as an mp3 maybe cut the first two minutes at the beginning maybe cut the last minute or two at the end and then it's just label it in media res and for all its flaws and imperfections it is it is like a live broadcast and then it's just post and it's done if we can keep it like literally that simple where it's not more than two hours of your time then I think that is something that we can we can work towards. Um, if that's not possible, I just don't know if I have the four hours a week to be on a group call. Um, and I'm so fascinated by them that I, I I need to sort of go back and listen to parts of it. Like the one, the the first two, and there's another part. There's like a th- part three that's come out since then. Um, I've had to like go back half an hour and just re-listen to a full half hour segment to really get the deeper nuance of it. So, um, 
I think if I was in the call that I would maybe distract other people or something like that. So I don't know whether how that's all going to work. I definitely accept the invitation if it's offered to me, though. Um, but if, and if, if you that's want to do something possible, that's just the, I then, say, if you want to yeah. do something that's just the two of us, the only thing I would ask then is like, I don't, I don't want to, I really don't want to commit to a once a week, like multiple once no, a week no, things. No. I really, no, really no, don't want I, to do that. So you I know, think if it's that like, it's more like that's my capacity is I can give ninety minutes at right. max a week. Now, if we do it every two weeks or every month, then that's a different. That that's whatever's manageable because you got to think about it in the fact that there's only 168 hours in a week, and you're probably busier now than you were when you were working at the restaurant because you've lost that structure, and now everybody from all around the world is like, oh, what's Alan up to? Oh, he's active again. Bang, let's bombard him with all this stuff, and it's like, yeah, that's not sustainable, and you're going to burn out. So. Um, well, I think I, I have I have much better boundaries now than I used, and that's why I feel comfortable having this conversation with you. Being like, no, I'm sorry, man, I don't feel comfortable doing that. It's just like I, that's the only way I'm surviving at this point, like me- mentally surviving the uh, the da- the dangers of burnout is to be like just good boundaries to say, hey, man, I don't, um, I this is what I can offer, or like I need to shut everybody off, and I have to work on my own project now, or whatever. And that's that's something that I've. I've notoriously destroyed my own productivity by agreeing to help other people with a project or, and I don't mean that like, cause I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying like, I, I have a bad habit of not having good boundaries and not taking care of my own prioritizing it's, my own projects. It's so, so important for everybody listening to acknowledge that is that we need to have a point whether it's in the evening where you say, okay, it's 6 p.m. local time, the computer is being turned off and it will not be turned on again until 8.45 a.m. the next morning. And that's end of story, right? Because we need that structure, right? We need to be calling our family members. We need to be going to the supermarket when it's safe to go. We need to be um, spending time in a hot bath or hot shower or watching our favorite movie with our, our kids or our partner or even just being still and being away from the constant noise of a, that a phone or a computer produces. But thank you for hosting me today, uh, Alan. I really appreciate it. And, and, you know, keep on going because it's tough times and I support you. Hey man, I really appreciate that, and I know, you know, I, I think we jumped into a, a serious sort of po- podcasty conversation, but just to say I know life isn't always easy, uh, personal life isn't always easy, and I uh, just want you to know that that's, um, that's a, another capacity in which I appreciate you, and I want to be there to, to return that sort of invitation to be, hey man, I support you getting through this, I, I know how hard this time is on a personal level and in, and in a global level and all that sort of things um and uh yeah just, i really i really appreciate you appreciate you being there man all right well until next we speak uh i guess now i i hit the hang up button and yeah. um you know the audience moves on to the next podcast thank you for listening to me guys and seriously um actually 
I don't have an email address that I can give out, but um, if there is feedback, maybe direct it towards Alan and he can forward it to me um, and just let me know. I'm thinking of doing a new podcast series myself if I can figure out my recording equipment. So if there's demand for that, then I'll, um, I'll expedite that process. But otherwise, I'm hovering over the hang-up button. I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs> I love you, Alan. I love everyone who's listening, and I can't wait to speak to you again. Have a great day, man. Thank you.